0: This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Flea. Making Oscar history is the first film ever nominated for Best Documentary Feature, Best Animated Feature, and Best International Film. Flea follows the story of Amin, an Afghani refugee forced to leave his home as a young child with his mother and siblings. Through the brilliant use of animation, director Jonas Poher Rasmussen brings the story of trauma, identity, and acceptance to life. Peter Travers calls Flea... A cinema experience like no other. Watch it now on demand and on Hulu.
1: Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish, the co-deputy editor of Film Comment. This last weekend, I was at the True Falls Film Festival, which is a wonderful festival dedicated to non-fiction cinema that takes place every year in Columbia, Missouri. At this year's edition, I had the pleasure of hosting a film comment live talk in partnership with Falls. The topic was points of view, which is a term that's used widely in discussions of documentary to mean a lot of different things, whether aesthetic, political, or cultural. To parse the various dimensions of point of view in cinema, I was joined by the filmmakers of two of the most exciting films at Falls. Joe Hunting, who made We Met in Virtual Reality, and Reed Davenport, the director of I Didn't See You There. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today's topic is points of view. The topic really arose from the works of the filmmakers that we have with us today, Joe Hunting and Reed Davenport. And before I say a little more about the talk and the topic, I'd love for them to introduce themselves. This is a little film comment podcast tradition where we have guests introduce themselves because you know you're you're free to kind of frame your life and work as sure. you like so Joe maybe you want to start us off
2: sure yeah well first of all thank you for having me on the podcast and uh, for the audience that we have present in the space here uh, it's a real honor to be a true false and to be with film comment my name is Joe Hunting I am the Writer-director of the documentary We Met in Virtual Reality, which is screening here at True, False and premiered at Sundance earlier in January.
3: Thank you, David Cup, for inviting us here, it's it's good to be here, excited for this conversation. Uh, my name is Ruth Averford. I am the director of I Didn't See You There, which I am honored to say is showing at true false, and um, I'm a documentary filmmaker, I've made a few short documentaries, and I Didn't See You There is my first future.
1: Great, and we at Film Comment are big fans of both of your films, and so this conversation started really as an excuse for me to talk to you both.
4: <laughs> and
1: uh, the thing that I thought really kind of connects your films, which are absolutely different by the way, if you haven't seen them. Joe's film is set in the world of Chat, which is this virtual reality social platform and films the um, lives and experiences of the really diverse and vibrant group of people who find a lot of meaning and richness in this social space and Reed's film is like a first-person, essayistic film about, you know, his experiences traversing Oakland, which I believe for a while was his adopted city, and Connecticut, where he's from, and, you know, really experiencing the city through the eyes of, and through the perspective of a wheelchair user, and connecting various cinematic issues and political issues relating to accessibility. Very different films, but I think, what both films really emphasize is the importance of point of view in documentary. And by importance, I mean the complexity, really. Uh, so many different factors go into shaping the point of view in a nonfiction film. There are technical aspects as to you know how the camera is positioned and who is operating the camera, all of those things. There's a cultural and psychological effect uh, to whose eyes we are watching the film through, you know, and whose gaze we are adopting as viewers. So there's a lot of different aspects. There are questions related to accessibility. There are questions related to gender and race and disability that come up when we talk about point of view. So both the films are really remarkable realizations of nonfiction point of view and do that in ways that I would say so far has been rare in documentary. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Mm And I wanted to start off by asking you both um, if you can recall the first time that you understood that when you're watching a film, there is a design to what is being portrayed. Like the point of view is a product of some kind of design. When we grow up, we often like when we watch TV or movies, we're not thinking that someone is Designing these shots, that they're chosen in a particular way, that they're being operated by a person, and I was wondering if there was a moment or a film that really exposed that to you.
2: Oh, yeah, that's a great first question. <laughs> I've not considered that, but the film I think that made me consider the truth and the point of view of um, of a subject and the you know, the way a director steps into a subject's life and um, and the documentary itself was by Werner Herzog, mm-hmm. who you know, famously has a very rebellious nature with this direction and often steps in. But I had to study Grizzly Man, which came out, I think, in the early 2000s. Uh, I studied it in film school and it's a com- it's a documentary that's made up of archival footage, but it presents Timothy Treadwell, which is the lead subject of the film really sympathetically and you really feel like you exist in his archival footage and that truth is also mixed in with interviews with friends of his Mm. and people who surrounded his life and I think it was through that film I was questioning how his memory was being constructed um, by the people surrounding him and by the direction of the film and that how he would feel about that so for me it was it was grizzly man um yeah. which i think is an interesting choice because it's archival it is, footage yeah. um but i think that was the film that made me question his point of view um as a person who is actually deceased
1: that's a great pick actually because that gets at the ways in which the word point of view means so many things in cinema it like means something literal but it also means a lot of broader symbolic mm. things right when you when you say point like what is a film's point of view We'll dig into that a little more, but Reed, come on—it's it's it's your turn now. Okay.
3: (laughs) The famous "If a Tree Falls" by Marshall Curry—it really tries to confuse and to complicate, and and doesn't preach. And watching it over a few times, I started to really realize. How intentional that was, and how even though a lot of the times documentaries have a point of view, this documentary's point of view tried to argue with itself, and I appreciated that sophistication.
1: That's a really great example as well. And I think both your answers are getting to that fuzziness I was talking about. The way you're describing your picks, almost there's like distinct meanings of point of view that are coming up in your answers. And um, so that's kind of my second question is what comes to your mind when we say point of view as filmmakers? What does that term represent to you?
2: Ooh, yeah, it's. I feel like it's a loaded question. Um, I think point of view is like where the, the kind of the truth of the film is based mm. for me. Um, Is it a truth that is existent in the filmmaker's direction? Is it a very intentional, excuse me, personal reflection on themselves? And are they stepping in and sharing their own point of view? I mean, in a sense, every filmmaker and every director, their point of view is in every one of every film that they make and every art that they Mm -hmm. create is in in some way a self-portrait. but I think that question raises, you know, is it the subject's truth that is being presented? Are we in their world? And whose world are we in? And what decisions have been made to to get to that um, point of view? I think that's what point of view represents to me. It's very much to do with the the truth of of the film and whose shoes we're in.
3: Point of view can mean so many things. I think, To consider point of view is necessary. I I don't think we, we can receive or give anything without a point of view. And also point of view can create art, can create innovation. So I, I think it's very much a moving target. What, what is point of view? How do you define it? How do you discern it? And it's, it's, it's challenging, but again, it's, it's human nature to interact with the world through all collective point of
2: views. I'd like to add, actually, I, I, wanted, I kind of would raise the question, is there, in a film, is there ever, there's never only one point of view, because there's always the director and the team behind the film with their own point of view that exists through the truth of even just the subjects of the film. I feel like there's always more than one, I would say, even though a film can be about one person. Um, that's something that I would reflect upon. So I agree with that. It's, 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 very, it's a mixed bag.
1: Well, that's a good kind of segue to my next question. You know, film is a, you know, unlike, say, painting or writing, it's a collaborative and technical process. So it is, I mean, there are instances when there's just a filmmaker with a camera and that's all a film is, but usually there's multiple people working and there's multiple um, fact technical factors that shape how a film looks and feels. Um, and in both your cases, I believe there were some special technical Elements that allowed you to film the way you did and, you know, shaped how the film looks to the viewer. And Joe, in your case, you were filming within the world of VR chat. Yes. But actually very cinematically. I mean, it's quite incredible that you you have pans and zoom-ins and these kinds of cinematic maneuvers, even though it's essentially, you know, this world where um, nothing is exactly real or material. And if you could tell us a little bit about the technology that allowed you to do that and why you decided to do it that way.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, Yeah, to set some context, um, the documentary was shot entirely using a virtual camera that's created by one of the members of the VRChat community. And VRChat is a platform where all of the worlds and all of the avatars um, that make up the universe they're all created by the community and by the users of the platform, including the camera that I shot the film on. And the, the ca- this camera was actually being built at the start of production as I was filming. So it was re- it's really early technology that's really still finding its feet. Mm. But this camera allows me to put on my headset, you know, hold my controllers, and I'm also wearing full body tracking and completely embodied in VR chat, and I can load the camera in my avatar's hands as if I'm holding it, but I'm really just holding my controller to operate. And I can control aperture, my focal length. I can fly it as a drone. And it has all the same functionalities as a real cinema camera, just in a virtual environment. So I had all the tools now available to me to to take advantage and tell a story that people could relate to. outside of VR and and through a flat screen film Um, when this camera came out it was you know real inspiration and it was kind of the inspiration that forged my decision to make a feature film Mm. um, certainly Um, and I could suddenly kind of bring up influences that I had in my live action filmmaking inspirations into what I was wanting to the story that I wanted to tell so this camera was a huge inspiration Um, in terms of my direction and wanting to use the camera a lot of the film is shot handheld and that was a very intentional decision to ground people in a perspective that they felt my presence and the filmmaker was present in the space mm. to give VR and give the subjects of the film uh, a very authentic truth that uh, we're grounded in the room with them and we feel like we're in the back of the car with them and we we're in the room uh, when they're trying on a new avatar and looking in the mirror. Um, that uncanniness and that kind of magic that happens when you're questioning what's real and what's not. And camera presence and my own place in in the film is really important to that, but I'd never show myself. You can in catch film, my shadow yeah, a yeah. few times but you can never see me and the, the, the truth of the film and the words of the film is completely from the subjects. Um, and there was a few kind of classical documentary techniques I used mm. to help guide their own points of view and their own stories. For example, there's some talking head interviews, which are seen in expositional documentaries most of the time to, um, to present facts um, but and can often be seen as quite lazy. <laughs> but to me, it was actually a really valuable and important tool to help people understand that this is a documentary and i'm using similar tropes that you'd see in a documentary to help ground people in this reality that can be really overwhelming or really confusing um mixed with other poetic and you know choreographed scenes which you know my intention is to exaggerate the the world of these people's kind of fantastical truth and their fantastical avatars and their virtual personas through more poetic imagery. So it's a real mix in balancing their points of view in their real lives with the points of view of their avatars and the mix of those those two and how they shape a, an experience.
1: Could they, could the people that you were filming, they were looking at you and they could like see a camera oh, within yeah. the vr world so they could see a camera pointing at mm-hmm. them like a, as they would in real life
2: yeah m- most of the time absolutely um there yeah any time i was shooting handheld or i was filming a very kind of intimate interview with the subjects of the film i would set up a camera and they'd see me fiddling around uh making sure i got my focus and control and you know there was a moment where i was just Messing with my camera, and they were mm. present in the space, and they were watching me do that, and as I was doing that, I was discussing, and there were so many moments outside of just the filmmaking process where we were chatting over the, the cinema of the film and how mm. I was constructing the the images of them, because of course they can't peek around my camera and see the monitor. We're not quite at that stage <laughs> yet, so it was really important to me to be in constant communication, so yeah, they could very much see me and um I could go in detail on what my avatar looks like. But well, I, that indulgent. was my next question. What, oh, really? what
1: is your avatar? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
2: my avatar is human. Um, ah. I look quite similar to myself, my physical flesh avatar. Um, I have a big red nose, kind of like a Pinocchio-esque boy um, with hair. I have hair. Um, and yellow eyes. And I'm wearing a shirt and shorts. And I have a big backpack with all of these patches on the back. Of different communities that I've collaborated with and people that have been really impactful on my life and the journey of uh, of making the film, and so I'm a very friendly-faced backpacker,
1: very very much the director uh, type. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Of the VR world. Okay, <laughs> that's that's really interesting. And Reed, in your case, um, you know, you say in the film actually that this is the first time you've been able to operate the camera. You've made films before, but you've never been the DOP. Um, and what was it that allowed you to operate the camera this time?
3: So I used a drone camera, a camera made for drones. It's mm-hmm. very lightweight, and I was able to, you know, hold it or rubberband it to my chair. It's on a gimbal, so it's pretty steady. And then I control. Things like aperture, ISO, what have you, to an app, either on my phone or my tablet. Uh, and including, I can literally move the head of the of the gimbal to the app. And 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 I think the most control happens is where I, is, When I decide where I will put the camera, about here is the almost up or down? Is the camera pointing to the ground? Is it pointing to the sky? I don't really do a lot of in-camera movement. I commit to a specific angle a lot of the time as I go out and I shoot.
1: Is this like a new innovation that allowed you to operate? Like, is this a recent technological development, the app and the use, the use of the drone camera in this way?
3: Yeah, I mean, I believe this camera has been around for five years, but I don't think I've seen a lot of wheelchair users use it in this way. The, I mean, it's used for drone heads. Or have the drone to do or rather take uh, videos with their drones
1: and would you say that existing camera technology is mostly inaccessible to wheelchair users?
3: Well, I can only speak for myself. The complicated thing about disability is that. If you identify with the community, you're also identifying with people with a lot of different bodies. Right. Um, so personally, um, my disability affects my fine motor skills. So that is a consideration. But there are also wheelchair users who don't have my motor skills or uh, I, I am ambulatory. You have to use it, you are not ambulatory. You, so you have to make it work for yourself. Uh, well, I mean, that's problematic in that there aren't these technologies out there yet, mm-hmm. but, it, but if you want to do it, you really have to adapt and evolve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And could you tell me a little bit about how you came across this technology and when and how you decided to make uh, I Didn't See You There?
3: Yeah, there was some person in my graduate school program. We weren't peers, but, but I saw about campus where the other You mentioned this camera that was really studied. And I looked into it, and I, I used it on my thesis film. I put it on other people's wheelchairs for a few of the shots. And I just I really dug it. Uh, I I loved the perspective of it. I loved how abstract it was, but it was also found it aesthetically pleasing. I had wanted to make a film about being stared at, and I I quickly learned that. That would have to be a a very intensive, very process with hundreds and hundreds of hours of video because it was hard to capture. But for some reason, I came back home after a bad date, and for some reason, this idea of making this film into my conscious, and I'm like I have to do this I have to make a film for my realtor. I didn't know what it was going to be about but I was going to make it
1: I feel like bad dates have been the starts of many <laughs> many films
4: <laughs> Yeah.
0: this episode of the film comment podcast is brought to you by Netflix presenting the power of the dog nominated for 12 Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Director Jane Campion, whose return to cinema after 12 years has brought what critics are calling the Best Picture of the Year. With an acclaimed cast of Academy Award nominees, including Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Cody Smith-McPhee, and Jesse Plemons, and a team of expert artisans, including winning cinematographer Ari Wegner and composer Johnny Greenwood, Campion's The Power of the Dog tells a story of strength and vulnerability that has been embraced by the industry and audiences globally. Peter Travers of ABC News called it a triumph in every sense of the word. For your awards consideration.
1: You know, something that, you know, your both your films get at in different ways are the complicated politics of being seen and seeing, you know, being seen, being visible can be really empowering, can be really humanizing. At the same time, there are people who are, like you were saying, read stared at, but not seen, right? And there's a way in which difference manifests itself in society in ways that people can often be on display, but they're not really seen as people. And Joe, in your film, uh, there's quite a lot of conversation among the subjects about how freeing it is to sidestep that whole aspect of human interaction, of Mm -hmm. being, you know, of of starting with like the visual aspect of the self and being able to instead form an identity for yourself and connect with someone beyond that. Yeah. Um, I was wondering maybe you could talk a little bit about it. And I know that you have a couple of your subjects in the audience here today. And maybe yes. this is an opportunity for them to chime in as well and talk about that, that aspect.
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd love that, of course. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think when I was approaching how to... Present that point of view and, and the story that I wanted or the direction that I wanted to, to take. Um, there's a lot of films about, well, to preface this, I, I've always been a big gamer myself. Mm. I've always had a lot of friends in online communities and grew up playing more massively multiplayer role-playing games. And so the stories of connection online was, was something I was really personally connected to. But I saw so many films about that world and documentaries about that world that really represented those people. Um quite un- unauthentically, you know i just didn't I never felt heard in those films you know one film I could use an ex- example is a Sundance film that came out a decade ago um, about Second Life, which is called life two point mm. and VR chat that social VR platform is very similar to Second Life in the way that it operates um but you're immersed in in VR um and that film although it presents scenes in the virtual world with their virtual personas and it gives them some sympathy. It's very much speaking from the outside looking in. And that frustrated me. And my film, We Met in Virtual Reality, was, it was always important to me to represent the people of VR from the inside and speak mm. from it and speak from the place instead of from the outside. And so that was a really intentional decision to film inside the platform and talk to them from a place of their own humility and their own experience, um, with their own choice to be in the film, and that they're leading their own representation, and they're aware of it. I wanted to mention that, and now I've gotten lost in my conversation. No. I've forgotten the the initial question, but <laughs> no, I, I would be I can bring them on, but please remind me. Of yes, the yes, no, no.
1: You, your answer was was right on track. I I just wanted to dig into this aspect of how in what ways does not being seen in what Mm, ways can mm. that be liberating or choosing how you want to be seen oh absolutely um,
2: yes you know thank you for reminding me vr is yes such a, a haven i think to find belonging in a community and to go into a world where you're actively you know looking to be seen and everyone wants to be seen and it's a very mutual um appeal for going into the platform and so I was actively looking for people who had, who were either going through a moment of finding belonging and finding a relationship or a community or, you know, uh, a family that they felt they had kinship with um, and to have them tell that story and, and what that experience was like, because I myself personally have found so much belonging in that. Mm. Um, so, I, you know, I'd be happy to welcome up Jenny who found, I think, a lot of belonging in the deaf and hard of hearing Helping Hands community. I wonder if you would like to come up and share what your yeah. experience was like, maybe working on the film, first of all, and how you discovered Helping Hands.
1: And Jenny, maybe you wanna just tell people the role uh, or you know, what your avatar is and what you do in the VR world. Okay.
5: Oh, okay, wow, those lights are bright. <laughs> Um, you're uh, yeah. You're being seen by everyone yes yeah. I'm being seen oh no <laughs> um, hi my name is well my VR name is Jenny uh, in the film I'm a pink haired sign language teacher I'm an admin and teacher for a sign language community uh, called Helping Hands we now have over 4,000 members uh, and we've been established since late 2018 um, I've been a part of the community since 2019 um, and yeah uh, in the film I talk about sign language and uh, accessibility for deaf and hard of hearing, um, but I also talk about mental health and how VR can help people with mental health issues or help people find a community through that. Um, and like I mentioned, I have very, very bright uh, neon pink hair um, and I have little cute overalls on and big gothic boots. Um, <laughs> and. Um, I think one of my favorite things that I've been able to see uh, from the press that's come out of the film is hearing people describe me <laughs> and I know that's a little selfish but like hearing people describe my avatar has been so fun and I think the most fun I've had is a article that described me as a vampish young woman <laughs> and I was so shocked because I am probably the most modestly dressed in the entire film. We actually have an exotic dancer as one of the main characters but I was described as vampish and um. I was so interesting yeah I was like that
1: says so much about how people view women in movies even when we don't
5: actually see you yes exactly and uh, that's also what I took away is um I used to be very quite shy on well I'm quite shy in real life but online I never showed my face um Mm -hmm. I never shared my name um and part of that was being a woman online I dealt with stalking or just uncomfortable interactions um and I feel like women especially in vr especially because we can see body movement and stuff like that we are very much objectified and that's a mm. real thing that really happens and it was really interesting to read and you know i love that article i'm not saying this person who wrote that article was objectifying me call me vampish love it mm-hmm. but <laughs> um it was i think that was something that i really took away because when you're in vr everyone just kind of dresses how they want and it's such Mm. just the culture Um, but when you walk away from it and you're seeing people react um, it was really interesting just to see how people will kind of objectify without even thinking but yeah so i don't know for me personally i just i like to be fun with my avatar and um, express you know my sides of myself that maybe i can't express in real life and it's very freeing (laughs) Are there moments when you wish that people could see you? I mean, are there moments when
1: not being um, seen as you are in real life and having this uh, version of you that obviously you created and have control over, is that ever limiting or you find it just uh, extremely freeing?
5: Oh, yeah, I don't think I've ever felt limited. Well, no, yeah, I I think it's just, it's great. I mean, even if it's like I get tired of Jenny, uh, her persona, Mm. I could change. I don't have to be... Jenny's avatar you know I have an avatar where it's just a giant cat with three eyes Mm -hmm. I love it I like I sometimes I feel like being a cat with three eyes you know so like it's an In real life, you know, I feel like everyone goes through moments where they feel uncomfortable in their own skin or, you know, I don't like my hair, I don't like my makeup, I don't like my clothes. But in VR, it's like, I don't like how I look, I can change it. And that in itself is really freeing. So yeah, you can be a cat with three eyes, go for it.
1: And, you know, you work with a community of ASL learners in the the film and um, what... Uh, and you know it, it's interesting to see in the film that VR chat doesn't like fully have the functionality sometimes yeah. to capture particular hand movements yeah. and so that's kind of a work in progress Definitely. i'm gathering yes. but other than the convenience of being able to join in from all over the world and find a community of other people learning asl um how do you think again this um the parameters of the vr world and being sort of anonymous yet with other people how does that shape the experience of the people that you work with
5: like specifically with helping hands yeah
1: yeah specifically with the ASL learners
5: um I mean I I think it's great I I consider helping hands a stepping stone into real life sign language Mm. so um there are some people who come in and they just learn VR sign and then they don't do anything with it and that's fine Uh, but I have a lot of students who come in they fall in love with the language in VR and then they go and pursue it in real life I actually had one of my students come up to me right before I left and they told me that they got accepted into an interpreting program and a real college and that they're going to follow that for their Mm -hmm. career and and that's just such an incredible moment and like them telling me that I was like one of the pushes for that like that's why I do Mm -hmm. what I do because I want people to be able to take the experiences that they had from VR and apply that in real life because it is limited and it is at the end of the day a video game and you could do a lot of good and you could experience a lot of amazing things, but you know, there's real life too. Kind of got to do that sometimes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I feel like great. it's a good stepping stone. That's how I'd put it. <laughs> wow.
1: Well, thank you for jumping in. Yeah, I think thank that you for was me. <laughs> uh, some really great insight into your experience. Thank you so yeah. much.
2: Can I chime in with one point? Yeah, go ahead. How oh. we work. When we were talking maybe in post- I think when, we were, when I was editing the film, you mentioned that if I had come up to you and asked you to do the same process um, and talking about the same subject of accessibility and mental health and VR, if that was a live action production and I had a camera on you in person, you would say no. But it was through the context of VR that um, Tia felt comfortable to share that story and share her point of view. And so VR, I think, has a very genuine and really exciting potential for people to share their stories in a world where they have a paper bag over their head, as Dust Bunny would often say, um, <laughs> uh, where you have a mask on. Um, and, and, you know, that was, I felt very privileged to be able to um, allow people to share that story through that through that context. Um, but I don't want to hold the stage, please. I'm so excited to hear what Reed has to say. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah, no. No. Um- And Reid, I think that's a, I have a kind of version of the same question for you. You say in your film that you wanted to see, but not be seen. Like that was kind of one of the organizing principles of the film. And you don't actually show yourself, even though we hear you and we see the world through your eyes. And if you could talk a little bit about why that distinction was important to you.
3: I think often, disabled people are seen but not heard. So I wanted to do the opposite of that. There is a lot of room to project in the film, but I wanted to limit what type of projection you could do, meaning how you could potentially interpret my life. Um, I wanted to... Talk about how I interpret the word. We talk a lot about empathy in documentary film, and I really think it's impossible, uh, and, and sometimes corrosive to even to even try and achieve empathy. You you don't need to be able to feel empathy in order to be considerate, and I want people to really consider my perspective.
1: Hmm. Can you say a little more about that? Like, what do you think is the difference between empathizing and considering uh, your perspective?
3: I, I guess empathy feels like a unicorn. I feel like it's it's really about being able to feel what that other person feels. We were just talking about point of view and how different all of our points of views are. And so is empathy really possible? And if it is possible, why do you need to be able to feel so much pain? Order to see them or in order to consider them, it, it, it can be more logical and rational than that.
1: Hmm. I love that. That's, hmm. yeah, because this idea that film is an empathy machine is just such a cliche now, but. But what you're saying makes a lot of sense about like whether it's even possible and also why does that always have to be a voyeuristic experience rooted in suffering? And you, you do a great job of presenting a very analytical perspective that at the same time opens the world up from your eyes to the viewer. Yeah. Um,
3: and I'm and- not saying empathy is bad, but I'm saying if you try to create empathy the road to hell is paved with good intentions <laughs> and um, I, I just think that if, if we have to experience empathy in order to be moved to do something that that is really high bar that, that doesn't happen very often.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you said uh, this distinction between being seen and heard, and I think that's a great point as well because actually both your films are really rooted in sound and voice very much, like their truth and perspective is actually rooted in um, the audio and oral experience of the film. Mm. And Reed, maybe you can talk a little about the film's sound design, which I think is quite incredible. I know Ernst Carell, worked on it uh, from the sensory ethnography lab. And, um, you know, there's not just your voiceover, there's also a lot of ambient sound, urban sound, and there's also non-diegetic sound that's mixed in with the images. Can you talk a bit about how you approached the sound design and what you wanted it to convey?
3: Sure. Uh, well, the editor of the film, Tad is the director and filmmaker in the he is also a musician and the so so throughout underneath the field he was also doing a lot of sound design so we could assess what we wanted it to do at and say as I always saw sound as really in Editorial considerations, even more so because this film—you could say this film—is minimalist. So, so having that sound, or what that sound is, can fill in some of that um blankness that that you might experience. Um, and then we, we worked with, um, a great house in New York, uh, Gigantic Studios, Tom Paul was the, uh, sound designer of the, many engineers, and they actually read, um, a kind of wheelchair to make this out, and, um, it tells you an experiential film, but but, but it tells you an approximation of an experience. So it's not as if we are trying to make you hear what I hear, or try to approximate it so you think you're hearing what I hear.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's incredibly immersive, I think, that approach and that technique certainly in the experience. For me, I think that that goes back to your points about empathy too. I feel like through the aesthetic and through the world of the sound and the aesthetic of the the visuals, that's what created the empathy in some way.
1: And Joe, maybe you could also talk a little more about how you approach sound. Uh, Voices play such a powerful role in your film. That's where, and you know, my experience of your film was that there was this amazing disconnect uh, you know, between what you were seeing, which always felt a little artificial just because, um, you know, it's it's VR. Mm. But the voices had this texture of emotion and, you know, intimacy and authenticity. And there was this dissonance that was very powerful um, throughout between those two registers of the film. So I was curious um, how you approached uh, sound design mm. and how you worked with the voices of the interviewees.
2: Oh, yeah. First of all, that makes me so giddy that you that really came through. It's a very intentional decision that the the ambience of the scenes and the music that was captured digestically in the documentary was was very clean and and it had a kind of artificial flavor to it. But the voices, all of the voices uh, from all of the interviews and from everyone that speaks in the film, it comes through the microphones of their headsets. Hmm. So I'm recording the audio live in VR. And sometimes it can sound crackly and it pops. And there's moments in the film where it kind of breaks. Um, and embracing that imperfection was what created the authenticity of their stories and of their voices. And it grounds people in their real selves and and you know makes you question what their situations are in person, and how they look, and you know what, um, where just the, where their voices coming from geographically, and in, in, in the world. And I think had I not recorded live through their microphones, that wouldn't be there, um, and that would be that magic and that truth would be lost. And so that was my, I think probably my most inspirational consideration when approaching the sound design. I think it's interesting to mention that when I was in production and I was filming in the worlds of VR, the worlds of VR come in all different aesthetics. You can Mm. visit psychedelic worlds, hyper-realistic worlds, natural, beautiful lakes to, you know, big cyberpunk cities. And I wanted to really bring people into those environments with very rich and immersive sound worlds. Um, And... Most worlds, as you can imagine, they're built by the community members. They're not going to spend hours of their time to build their own sound worlds for these environments. So I only recorded the voices throughout the whole of the production. It was only recording the voices of the subjects. And I actually had all of the s- sound of the worlds mm. down. They were muted. And I created all of the ambiences in the film in post.
1: Interesting. So I didn't a, realize this mm, at all.
0: Okay. There's a,
2: there's a layer of construction there um it's probably my biggest step into the the truth of the the landscape as a as a filmmaker but I think it serves the film's fantasy so well Mm. um and it helps shape the the world of VR in, in a very immersive way that is truthful to the you know subjects experience I think we we As a person who spends a lot of time in VR as well, when you're in a world, you almost believe that you're there and you're feeling the sound and you feel tangible in the space. And I think I wanted that to come through in the film. And in order to get to that place, building a very rich soundscape myself was the necessary decision. Um, And so all of the ambiences are created in post using sound libraries um, that I discovered through, you know, researching and Hmm. And uh, recording myself for some and situations. are
1: they approximating the actual sound worlds, or you know are you trying to approximate the sound world of that particular VR scape as accurately as possible, or did you make your own decisions in creating the soundscape?
2: I've, most of the time it was, it was' based upon the the visuals of the world um and wanting to just exaggerate that and really bring that to life, but I didn't go to the extreme. Um, I made another project. I made a series in VR prior to making the feature. And in that series, I added Foley to all of the clothing of mm. the subjects. And I added um, loads of footsteps to their step. And I went complete, full on, on the sound design. And it really broke down their voice and how they're embodied in the world. It, it kind of was a weird line where you felt like you were too much in the v r world and you were not quite in their real world, and it kind of stepped into this dangerous place where you you just didn't understand how their clothes were moving mm. um and so it was a very distinct decision to only do the ambiences of the world and the voices and to hold back on adding the details and let the ambiences and the voice just just speak the the truth and I think that was the the recipe that um that achieved that how i achieved the the aesthetic of the film had i'd gone you know less on ambiences and more on the voice or less on the voice and dubbed and added foley and you know went full into the aesthetic of vr i think i you know that i would have lost that so it's finding that balance in both truths was what led me to to those decisions
1: Great. well i have uh, just a final question and then we'll have a little time in case anyone in the audience has questions My final question just kind of builds on things that both of you have touched upon, um, which is, you know, the trickiness with working with point of view, uh, where it feels specific to the point of view of either the subject or the filmmaker. In Reed's case, you know, it's uh, his own point of view. In your case, Joe, it's the point of view of the subject. But it still feels open enough to invite the audience in. I feel like that's maybe a very... Central um, challenge for a nonfiction filmmaker: How do you invite people in, but you also maintain the truth of the, uh, you know, perspective of the subject or the filmmaker? And I'm curious, maybe, Reed, you could start us off because in the film you are talking about your own experiences but you're expanding into history and politics and urban life you know you're commenting on the tradition of the circus you're commenting on pt barnum who in an amazing coincidence is from your hometown
3: that <laughs> that's, that's one yeah
1: um and so maybe you could uh, talk about like how how you decided the scope of the film in a sense
3: yeah, that, that was a difficult, difficult thing to tackle. How, how, wh- wh- what do we talk about? Uh, how do we connect the personal to the political? I, I think there are certain points in the film where um I wanted to be completely apolitical so that people could come in, could kind of relate on um, a universal level for lack of a better term. And I think, uh, or I hope that different pieces would resonate with different people. And once I kind of caught them in that resonance, then I could become a little political, as they could I could um deepen my perspective.
1: Well, it works incredibly well, I have mm-hmm. to say. I mean, it's it's a very engrossing film that feels just perfectly poised between the personal and the political. Um, how about you, Joe? I mean, for you you're working with different subjects, mm-hmm. you're kind of effacing your presence, but you're also operating the camera in this handheld manner. So mm-hmm. what were the negotiations for you?
2: Yeah, I think the f- my, my kind of first answer to that was I wanted to f- represent um, the world of social VR and VR chat specifically as very much as broadly as I could. Um, and so I was traveling through the worlds of VR and immersing myself immersed myself into about eight different communities and really got involved and tried to understand who and um, what stories were existing in those communities and then kind of selectively picking out people who were in a lot of different contexts and had um, their fingers in different pies and were in different relationships, not only in the community, but outside of that, um, and then tapping into the, them and and discussing the film and wanting to make a film about representing VR as a whole mm. and um t- sharing a lot of different contexts. And so the navigation of working with the different subjects I think is so individual because they're all in different contexts and different communities. And it took me time and I think it was really important that I spend time to not be filming and actually spend time with them um casually and understand their language as a community. Um, especially with Helping Hands, where I don't speak the language that is dominant in the space, ASL and the various Mm. sign languages. Um, And once I found the stories that I'm grateful I discovered with Jenny and Dust Bunny and the different communities, it, to me, stories of human connection, relationships, queer representation and, you know, discussions around how non-binary and LGBT communities are establishing spaces on VR and online social VR spaces, as well as, you know, sexual empowerment and very just fundamental human experiences that are very relevant today, just in a, in another reality. Those were the stories that I was interested in telling, but I was not the person to tell them. I'm not a hard-of-hearing deaf person. That wasn't my point of view to share, so it was finding people to to share the stories that I was inspired by. And so that was my approach when discussing with the subjects mm-hmm. and giving them the freedom to share that part of their lives and discuss their experience in VR in a very natural and in an environment where they feel safe and comfortable to do so. Um, and, and taking that and then constructing it into a narrative and into a film in the editing process. I was editing as I was going along and was com- I was communicating the edit as we were going along. Um, and you know, it was through that process that the film was discovered. In terms of my own point of view in the film, I definitely remain invisible, and I always have in my documentary. It's a very observational film at points. There's a moment in the film, a scene, I think, which is the most distinct and where I step in in a dance montage, where the truth of the film is, is is leaning completely into the fantasy of the, the the virtual personas of the characters and it's less so about their voice but the dance is a kind of collaboration with the subjects of the performance mm. um they're both amazing dancers um and you know it becomes that
1: a music video for it, a, for be- a short it, moment it yeah. does it does
2: <laughs> um but it, it's it's still you know, I wanted it to be their point of view and, and remaining neutral as well. Um, the, I think the, the stories of the film remain very neutral. That's not like an underneath political message that the film presents because VR is still so new. I felt like we there's, were still establishing what it even means. Right. And so presenting a political, social message in a very concrete and directed way is too early now mm. we just need people to understand the fundamental human experience of what it is like and then maybe i can tackle those conversations later um mm. because there are yeah. issues and i think there are ethical questions around vr um and accessibility as well that um, you know is i think it's now starting to be talked about with metaverse and meta mm. and vr is becoming more popular but at this and stage corporate. it was and corporate yeah, which yeah. vr
1: chat isn't right i mean it's it's
2: it's created by the community. Right, it's community yeah. driven entirely. So helping people just understand and be grounded in the world and not be confused by the speculative media that Facebook are pushing out. That was what I wanted to to present and mm. show the benefits of VR as well. Because we know the negatives about balance and the the way um, gaming and online communities can be a negative space. Um, the internet is inherently you know a messy yeah universe and so presenting the benefits i think was was something that is underrepresented
1: yeah reading up about vr chat after i saw your film because i had very little familiarity with vr and reading uh, that and finding out that it is this non corporatized community created space it felt like this you know little oasis on the internet which is now you know there was a moment where the internet seemed like An opportunity for that and then quickly it was kind of Mm. um, you know taken over by a lot of corporate interests and you Mm. know and it seemed quite wonderful that this space still has managed to maintain that communal identity.
2: Well the film is also a time capsule hopefully VR is becoming more (laughs) corporate and it will continue to be as the internet did. VR is almost like how the internet was when it first uh, came um, right. full of, you know, LGBT queer people leading the fray and building the spaces and, and using VR as a place to um, be themselves and be embodied in different ways. That was the same with the internet when the internet right. first came in, um, amongst other stories. And so VR is in that infancy, I think, and yeah. it was important to preserve that.
1: Great. Well, um, does anyone in the audience have questions? We, we already have a couple hands. It's a great question. I'm just going to repeat it so it's on the mic. The question is, how do you maintain your vision of the film when you're bringing in producers, editors, other kinds of stakeholders in the making of the film?
3: Well, it's about the person. Uh, It's about trust. Uh, You can only communicate your vision so much. And it's going to come down to to finding the people who are on your team and making sure that they not only say yes to your vision, but, like, you can feel them buying into it, as I was fortunate enough to find people who did buy into it.
2: Yeah, I would only echo that point, I think what reed has said is exactly true um and i imagine that's the same for most filmmakers for me my answer is a bit easier because i actually shot and directed edited and finished the film prior to bringing on other producers to help with the the sundance delivery and and getting the film to festivals but even still you know finding people that did understand the film and the value of the film both technologically and emotionally was the same consideration I think what I'd add to that is be open to letting people come into your vision and don't shy away from it. I think I'm someone who did shy away from having people come in because what I was doing was very unique and um, I had some protection over it.
4: Mm. And it
2: took me some time to have people come in and and collaborate into, into that process and Having producers come on that are from the industry and understanding the film and what it means has been um, a a big growth for me. Um, And so allow people into your world and explain what it is and communicate the idea and, and be honest with each other and spend time with each other outside of the film as well. So, you know, you're on the same rhythm. I think always be open to it. (laughs)
1: Forgive me if I, if I reduce it too much in summarizing, but so Marshall's uh, question is about the observer effect. You know, when you have a, uh, the presence of a camera always influences the reality that is being captured. So how did Joe basically Mm -hmm. reckon with that in VR world where there's more uh, ability to influence what you allow people to see and what you don't allow people to see?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. when I, um, baffled a lot whilst I was um, kind of writing the film towards the beginning and I love the way that you used ecstatic truth it's a Werner Herzog term uh, mentioned them in the, in the, in the beginning um, I think first off the we're always aware whenever we're making a documentary or whatever, and we're on camera we're naturally aware of the camera and that changes the way that we behave and we have always will have a mask in documentary and I think in this context that mask is just exaggerated to a point where we're a complete we're an avatar in a space and that mask is a living creature in in a world and it was my decision to instead of just letting that be but I wanted to exaggerate that to a point where that mask becomes the the lead character of the story and i think it was in exaggerating that truth that You kind of, you just lean into it and you forget about what their real contexts are and and their their real identities are. And I think that's the truth of the film. Um, At the end of the film, the subjects kind of move on in their relationships and they move on with their friendships and their communities to a point where they're thinking about coming out of VR or you feel a sense that they're leaving VR behind. And I think it's in that, ending that you realize that this world that we've been immersed in this fantasy world this this truth is a constructed one and one of masks and one that we have created our own identities and i think it's in that realization i hope that people realize that um that our real selves are always going to be the the authentic part of us um i think that's what i'd say to to that answer um it's It's just in the 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 kind of mix of of those two truths that the ecstatic truth exists um but I think my presence in shooting with a- d- distinct camera presence adds to that too um and presenting their world in a realist way, but I think it's in that realization where v r is is a constructed world and the masks exist the awareness of the mask
1: mm actually i have a related follow-up for reed just drawing on marshall's question um you know what some of the most interesting scenes in your film are when we see how other people are looking at you mm-hmm. you know and one scene that really uh stands out is when you board the bus and you kind of swivel around and you see all the people on the bus kind of looking turning away you know and it's um You're also just capturing public life in Mm -hmm. kind of uh, a very pointed way. Could you talk about, you know, that experience of navigating the streets with a camera? What was it like to interact with people and capture them?
3: In an ideal world, I wouldn't be shooting people in public, but I really felt that these interactions were falling through the cracks that people would not see these that people I could tell these stories but, but but it's another thing to see it. So I I really felt um righteous run right along in by shooting of, public life. Maybe it wasn't the most comfortable thing to do, or, again, we do not live in a perfect world, but I really believe that that these were pertinent to people who would watch a film.
1: So the question is about including reflections, shadows, these traces of your presence, even though you don't include Yourself in a more direct way?
3: I think I like to leave a lot to the
2: viewers, so I will leave that to you. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Yeah. yeah. Well, Good answer. That's a, it's an interesting connection that I think both of our films share, actually, um, which I didn't realize. Um, there is, uh, there's only two, i you can actually see me in the opening scene of the film, um, but no one knows my avatar. So, ah, oh. um, but if you talk to me afterwards, I'll tell you <laughs> which Here's one I little, am? There's a
1: little uh, Easter egg for there, listeners. Yeah, yeah,
2: There's a there's a cameo of me in the film, but normal Oh, uh, which is good fun. But mm, there is a, there's, there's a scene in the film where it's really hard to to notice, but I pull focus in, in a mirror, and you see a camera but it's only the camera and my body is unexistent. Mm. Um, because in some scenarios, I would actually make myself invisible and you could only see the camera floating around the space. Um, which I told the subjects that was not <laughs> me taking advantage. Spooky. No, it's yeah. very spooky. And you see the camera just floating next to these these people. Um, and in that, that comes much later in the film and is part of I think reaching a place of understanding that it is a constructed film and this is a documentary and and reaching that truth that we were mentioning earlier about that ecstatic truth. Um, I think being aware of the camera in VR and the process of making the film is so much about understanding what the film is about. Mm. Um, And so that's why one of the final shots of the film, you also see the head of my avatar against the sand. It's my shadow. Um, And I think that's quite profound because it feels real and you Mm. really feel like there's someone holding the camera and they're present in the space which you know is quite shocking in a vr context um that that was that was my feeling but that's great that's something that we share and um i really really enjoy watching a film that has a a similar approach i think it's a, a wonderful way of understanding the the truth of the subject especially in being seen and not heard and yeah vice versa
1: I actually just want to throw a final question to you guys, just a brief one. Throughout this conversation, um, you know, I've been thinking from your answers, where is the point in the making of the film where you feel that your point of view is most explicit? Is it scripting? Is it filming? Is it editing? Because I think even though we think of films as like primarily visual, your answers Indicate that there are various other aspects where your uh, vision really is maybe coming through more strongly, and I, I'm just curious.
2: Hmm. Do you want to take that one, me?
3: Sure. Yeah. Um, I so I I usually edit my own work. This was the first time I didn't, mm. but yeah. I I felt my perspective came in the other, the writing of the voiceover kind of the, the, the film as the whole being. Um, the, the, the voiceover was, I tried to make it straightforward, I, uh, uh, I tried to have the approach be as singular as possible, and I feel like that really catered to me getting my point
2: of view across. Mm. Mm. I think I'm the same. I think the editing process yeah. for me, I've I always I've always edited my own films, and I I edited We Met in Virtual Reality, and I think it was through the editing process that is obviously you're constructing the moments of the mm. film and you're. You're you're changing the time of when things were shot, and that's when you're constructing scenes, and so that's when I felt the most. Um, I was I was presenting the, the the stories in in a way that was truthful to to me, and and was based on my own inspirations, and my own influences. So I was definitely in the editing process. I discovered that um, it when I was in production, I intentionally wanted to remain as an observer in, in many scenes to. Uh, for it to have a very realist and and a flavor that was relatable in other documentaries, but mm-hmm. in VR. And so I was often very quiet behind the camera. And with the interviews, they were very much the subjects led them. Um, and I was there as a as a person to just provoke conversation. And so I was, I was kind of remained quite, quite quiet um, during production, but it was through the editing that I really shaped it into something that I was inspired by and the stories that, both the collaborators and myself related to and and people outside of Yarka relate to. So that's, that's my answer. Sorry, I'm talking too much.
1: No. (laughs) Well, that's great. I think, um, you know, it's, uh, we're good to wrap up there. I think we've we've (laughs) just covered so much ground and thank you both so much for, you know, being up for this. Um, I... Really, it was. It's been a privilege to talk to you both, and I think both your films really expand um, our understanding of point of view in nonfiction and present something completely new. And I hope that viewers are going to um, connect to them and take away something from them. And uh, I'm sure they're going to be. If you're listening and you're at True Falls. <laughs> check them out. But I'm sure that they're gonna have a long journey ahead and we'll be talking about these films for a while. So thank you so much. And thank you for the audience and True Falls.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having us. This is a pleasure.
0: The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream arthouse and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by FLEA. Making Oscar history as the first film ever nominated for Best Documentary Feature, Best Animated Feature, and Best International Film, Flea follows the story of Amin, an Afghani refugee forced to leave his home as a young child with his mother and siblings. Through the brilliant use of animation, director Jonas Poher Rasmussen brings the story of trauma, identity, and acceptance to life. Peter Travers calls Flea a cinema experience like no other. Watch it now on demand and on Hulu.